1: Before COVID, I used to travel about 200 days a year and stayed in a lot of hotels. Now I'm beginning to travel again. So I'm always interested in what's going on in the hotel industry. And I had a chance to talk to the head of Hilton Hotels, Chris Nassetta, about how the industry was suffering during COVID, is coming back now, and how the industry is really changing itself to accommodate new demands from its customers. So of all the industries in the United States, probably the lodging industry has been the most heavily impacted by COVID. Do you think that's a fair statement, you and the airline industry probably?
2: Yeah, I think so. Maybe the cruise industry would would probably top the list, but I think we'd be near the top of the list. Yeah, it's it's been a difficult couple of years, but things things have improved by by significant margin from where we were. We we started out in the first quarter of 2020 at eight or 10% occupancy, which, We've never, yeah, you know, never, never experienced that kind of downdraft. Um, certainly, in the fo- almost 40 years I've been doing this. But at this point, we are, while we're not through COVID. We're not back to where we were at the peaks of 2019. We're sort of like still 15 to 20 percent down, and generally trending in a positive direction. My guess is, when we get to the second, third quarter of next year, we will be back to peak levels of. Of demand, uh, similar to 19. What's been really interesting and been well documented, I guess at this at this point, is the leisure business has been off the charts. Um, if you look at demand for leisure broadly, r- the rates on leisure they're already significantly higher than the peaks of 2019. The business segment and the group and uh, the meetings and events segment, you know, is on a you know on a slower. Uh, recovery which you'd expect but 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 you know building building up some momentum
1: so you think the worst is behind us for the time being i think the worst is
2: definitely behind us it's not a straight line up but i think the worst is definitely behind. So us. as
1: covid was hitting the industry uh, you had to close hotels and lay people off i assume that was extremely difficult
2: it was you know it, it's interesting you know having done this for almost 40 years the we open hotels all the time. In fact, at this point, we're opening more than a hotel a day in the world. Still, even during COVID, we've been opening more than a hotel a day around the world. But we very rarely close hotels. It's not something people don't focus on. We, you know, when a hotel opens, it's open most of them forever. Like you open them up, they open, they're open their doors, they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're, uh, you know, it's sort of an epicenter of activity and you rarely close them. You close them pretty much when you're gonna tear them down for another use or, or build another hotel. So we, we are not very experienced at closing hotels, but we gained the experience. But the hard part. Um, well, did
1: you did you close hotels? Actually, We closed, we closed
2: a significant percentage of the system. At some point in time, you know, we had probably 1,500 of circa 7,000 hotels that were closed. But the difficult part, sort of, you, you asked it in the question was the people. Um, hotels were closing, you know, it, had a, it had a huge impact on our frontline team members in the sense of you know, necessitating furloughs, reductions in force, you know, bo- both in the field and corporately. And so as hard as it is to close the hotels, it was really the people side of it in the early stages of COVID it was heart wrenching.
1: So now that you're coming back, you have the opposite challenge. You have to open hotels and Correct. hire employees back and it's been reported that it's hard to get employees to come back for the previous jobs, or to hire new people, you have to pay much more. So is that a big challenge for you in reopening hotels?
2: It is, at this point, almost all our hotels are open, um, but they're not fully staffed. So this, the, the single uh, biggest issue that we have is getting labor back into the hotels broadly, but particularly in certain roles, like housekeeping and the culinary areas. And while um, we've seen some easing of that you know, over the last few months, we still have a ways to go. And so it's something we're working very hard on. It's, it's a complicated issue. You know, it's, it's part, you know, throughout, throughout this has been health concerns. People don't wanna go to places where other people are congregating. It's been significant issues on childcare, particularly when schools weren't open, people had nobody to take care of their children. Um, there have been government policies that have obviously, you know, compensated people, you know, that were unemployed, in ways that provided some some disincentives. And you, you put, uh, and then there, to be honest, there's some people that just have been reevaluating, you know, life and what they want to do. And some of the, you know, some of some of those folks have said, you know, I'd rather go work in a warehouse rather than, you know, clean rooms and other things. So it's a complex equation that's going to take. A, a significant amount of time to sort of work through we're a lot better off than we were even three months ago and I think when we wake up over the next year we'll be able to get uh, I'm hopeful labor back you know to, to be able to do what we do
1: so one of the biggest concerns I assume the industry has is that people like me have gotten used to using zoom and therefore instead of traveling across the country or around the world I can zoom is that a big concern that people will say look the zoom experience is actually pretty good and I don't need to travel
2: it's not a big concern for me. I think, you know, and I think the world's figuring this out. I mean, a year ago, um, you know, I, I think people were saying, gosh, this works, it's so efficient, maybe I don't need to do the things that I was doing. I think a year later, as at least everybody I'm talking to has realized there are real limits to it. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's great technology, we use it, and and it has facilitated our ability to continue to communicate during this crisis. But, there is a a um, unstoppable force uh, that exists with humans, which is humans want to interact with humans, and that isn't just for a vacation. Humans need to, and want to interact on business to build partnerships, to innovate, to to build culture, and they want to congregate. The meetings and events business. They want to network. They want to you know to grow their business, to build relationships, and so. I have no real worries. I mean, every time you know, we've sort of, as we've been recovering. If you look at you know, the the minute people start to feel like we're through the crisis, the demand for meetings and events, which is the longest
1: lead, skyrockets. People are people are dying to get out. Okay, let's talk about your own background. How you came to be the president and CEO. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up right nearby here, Arlington, Virginia and you went to school in high I school? I went to a
2: public high school in Arlington, Yorktown High School, went to UVA. I ended up at the McIntyre School of Commerce Undergraduate Business School. Uh, got out and decided I wanted to follow my father and uncle's footsteps and be in the real estate development business and ended up working for uh, one of the biggest developers and, and still a good friend uh, today in the DCR, Oliver Carr. And my first job was actually ended up being a hotel, which was the Willard Hotel and Office Complex.
1: So Oliver Carr was it was an individual who built a very big real estate company in Washington, D.C. The company's still around. Um, then you were recruited, I guess, to go to Marriott. Is that right?
2: No, I in between there, I, I created a private equity business. I, you okay. know, a little teeny one compared right. to that the big behemoth that, right. that you're part of. At the time, you know, this would have been in 1991. This was the early days. A private equity generally, certainly real estate private equity. And our view was th- that it's there's gonna be massive opportunity as a result of the displacement going on in the s and crisis, just so much inadvertent ownership of real estate on the wrong people's balance sheets. And we wanted to get out and, uh, and take advantage of that. So we did, so for five years, my partner and I went out and uh, had a fabulous private equity business. We did, you know, a lot of deals, probably, you know, it seems like small numbers today, but probably a half a billion dollars of deals across the spectrum of hotels and office, did a lot of tax exempt multifamily uh, in in our fund, and uh, had a lot of great partners, um, one of whom was Blackstone, and then got recruited, my partner and I, to go to what was then Host Marriott, Um, after after doing that for five years.
1: Host Marriott was the real estate arm of Marriott Hotel. Marriott had split the company into two parts. One was the brand Marriott that operates the hotels and manages them. The other part was owned the real estate, right? And that was Host Marriott.
2: I came in as a COO and I became the CEO within four years. Uh, My partner in our private equity business, Terry Golden was CEO, I was COO. He retired in four years, and I and uh, and I took over. As All right. The, so
1: you're running Host Marriott. You did a very good job, as I remember it. Um, I think. So, so. how I did you come so. to uh, Hilton?
2: I mentioned in my private equity days, I'd gotten to know the Blackstone guys, you know, really well. John Schreiber, then, who's since retired, John, but John Gray, you know, particularly really well. Um, Steve Schwarzman a, a bit. And um, when I got to Host, as a result of that relationship and given their interest in the hotel space, we did a bunch of. Um, transactions with them. So while I had known them, I got to know them really, really uh, well. And as a result of that relationship, I guess, when they decided, you know, in July, early, late June, early July of 2007, that they were going to buy Hilton, John Gray called and said, I've got the perfect job for you. We know you. We like you. We trust you. We think you've sort of trained your whole career to be able to run a company like this. We think there's a huge amount of upside and uh, potential. This this company has been grossly under managed and you should come do it. Um, and I said, what are you, crazy? Um, I'm going to pick up my wife and my six little daughters at this time, and we're gonna to move to Beverly Hills, California. My, you know, I, I famously said like, well, we're gonna be like the Beverly Hillbillies out, you know, right. I don't see the Nesetas on, on Rodeo Drive. Um, but those that know John Gray know that uh, he's very persuasive. And the truth is, as I step back from it, and as I talked to my wife, who was an equal partner in the decision, we realized how many chances in your life are you gonna have where it's a counterparty like Blackstone, who you know really well, who you trust. It's a business that you know, but has massive opportunity, and it meet, and it suits your skill set. Um, and those things just don't come together that often. And so, eventually, I decided we would be, pick up and be the Beverly Hillbillies, and
1: we moved. So, Hilton was a publicly traded company. Blackstone bought it for roughly $29 billion. Some people thought it was a pretty high price at the time. You come in to manage the large amount of debt and so forth, and you moved your six young daughters all the way out to California. I did. And then um, the Great Recession comes, and all of a sudden the debt from the leverage buyout seems to be burdensome. Were you worried that the deal wasn't going to work at all and it might go bankrupt?
2: I, David, I, t- I slept like a baby. I slept for two hours. I woke up, cried, <laughs> slept for another two hours, woke up and cried. Uh, kidding. No, you know, the truth is there were some tense moments at the, you know, at the beginning of the Great Recession, but we never lost faith, you know, like John, John and I particularly as the two that sort of put our heart and soul into making this thing work, John Gray and I, we, we knew we had a really good strategy. We were building a world-class team and, you know, I'm a big believer in a steady hand on the wheel. What goes down will come up, you know, don't panic if you've got a strategy. Work the strategy, adapt it to the times, and, and you know, you'll get to the other side. And we did.
3: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
0: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: So, you don't have as much gray hair as I do, but do you get any I, gray I, hairs? I, I, I might question that, I you, got you, a you, lot. You, 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 did you get any gray hairs from this experience? I definitely,
2: I definitely did. But I found it, in, you know, I, I definitely got more gray hairs and I'm not gonna say like, I. you know, it didn't stress me out on occasion, but I love a challenge. I mean, the truth is, I had a really great job running host and I love the company and the people and the board was incredible to me. And so why did I leave? I wanted a bigger challenge and, you know, something that was more global and needed fixing. And so the reality is the Great Recession, while it was hard and it was stressful, it was also an opportunity to sort of stretch myself and and to, you know, fix it and to really push myself to get to the other side.
1: So Blackstone ultimately injected some more money into the deal and they bought some debt back at a discount. Bottom line was, they ultimately took it public, or you took it public, and it turned out to be one of the most successful, if not the most successful buyouts in history. I think Blackstone made about a $14 or $15 billion profit. Uh, That's when you, what I'm told. And when you took the company public, um, you did it at a certain price, but today I think the price is up about 600%. The stock is up about 600%, so uh, you must be pretty happy. Right? I think so. We, we,
2: you know, did our job for Blackstone and, and their investors, and they, you know, they, they made a great profit, you know, out of what looked like a difficult setup during the Great Recession. And yeah, anybody that, is, that bought the stock when we when we went public and held it has done exceptionally well.
1: So CEOs today are under a lot of pressure to speak out on publicly controversial issues, uh, civil rights issues, voting rights issues, other things. Do you feel as a CEO that you should be speaking out? Is that good for your shareholders or stakeholders? It's a
2: really complicated issue, and, and it always has been. But as the representative, most senior representative of the company, for, for the company effectively, through me to have a view, it has to be directly connected to our purpose. So I'm constantly looking at the convergence of what is good for society, but is also good for our business. And, and looking at that point of overlap And making sure that we're focused in those areas because here's the thing again in my humble opinion today's world everybody wants you to have an opinion on everything and and do everything last i checked focus and discipline matter and so we've picked sort of three areas that are most important to us diversity and inclusion which is clearly a huge part of our business we serve an an immensely diverse customer base immensely diverse team member population so you know, that's a really important uh, area of work and that I do speak out on. On the social side, youth, you know, one of the biggest issues in the world today is that was a problem before COVID that's only gotten worse is youth unemployment. We need young people desperately to want to get into our business. So it's it's uh, definitely uh, in that convergence. And then the environmental side of it. You know, if we don't have destin, if we don't take care of our destinations around the world, there is no travel business. And so that is directly you know, taking care of the environment and, the, and attending to climate issues, not only can we have a big impact on it, but it's, it's immensely important to the, to the future opportunities in travel and tourism. Now,
1: your company was started more than 100 years ago, a little bit more than 100 years ago by uh, Conrad Hilton. He's famous for many things. He built this company, but I was told that one time he made a famous statement about the most important thing In the hotel business can you tell us what that was
2: he did i I wasn't alive to see it but he was uh he was quite famous in the time and he ended up on the johnny carson show on more than one occasion and at one point as it goes i've seen the clip so it's not legend johnny carson said all right connie he he went by connie um you're the the biggest hotel man on earth could you just give everybody in the audience one piece of advice he said if i could give you one piece of advice i would say." please keep your your shower curtain inside the
1: shower because otherwise it was going to leak out and the water was going to damage the hotel correct so do you ever commune with conrad hilton do you ever get any messages from heaven from him (laughs) saying you're doing a good job protecting my name i haven't but
2: i do have his bust right next to my office when we moved out of beverly hills um, we had all sorts of paraphernalia that you know that, that was related to the history of the company most of which i sent to the Conrad Hilton Museum at the, at the University of Houston because I thought it would be great for them to catalog it and have it. The one thing I did keep was his bust, which I keep very close by my office. I did, so I did know Conrad personally. I did meet his son, Barron, um, who ran the company for, for over 40 years um, and was very close to his father. Um, and they, you know, uh, at least talking to Barron, he was quite proud of, of what we had done with the company and suggested to me Con, Conrad would have been as well.
1: Well, Conrad Hilton was very famous and Baron Hilton was very famous, but honestly, the most famous person with the last name Hilton is Paris Hilton. Paris. Is she involved in the company? She
2: had, more recently, we've been working with Paris on the marketing side of it. We're, we're uh, working with her. She just got married and she's on her honeymoon and we're helping sponsor the honeymoon. And so we, we have been doing um, some work more more recently.
1: When I was growing up um, in a blue collar family, we couldn't afford to go to Hilton. Hilton was the ultimate brand in those days and we were lucky if we could go to say a Holiday Inn or something like that. Um, over the years, Hilton name hasn't yet been seen as maybe as ultimately elite as Ritz Carlton or Four Seasons. Is that a fair statement in some respects?
2: Yeah, it is and, and by choice. If you go back 50 years ago, Hilton was probably the leading pioneering luxury brand on earth. But as time went on and as we learned that segmentation mattered in the business and that the customers had these different needs, we really tried purposefully to make Hilton a four-star brand to allow for other things above it. So
1: your ultimate luxury brand, is that Waldorf Astoria? That's
2: Waldorf Astoria. Our luxury brands are Waldorf Astoria, Conrad, and LXR. You're in a Conrad as it turns out today, but the very highest end of luxury for us is, is Waldorf, then Conrad, and LXR is a collection of luxury, historic luxury hotels.
1: Now in New York City, there's the famous initial Waldorf Astoria, which has been under construction or rehabilitation for a few years. Um, you don't own it, but you're gonna manage it, I presume. Is it gonna open in my lifetime?
2: Well, let me correct one thing. That is not the original Waldorf Astoria. Oh, the original not. Waldorf Astoria uh, was, was uh, put together as a consequence of the Astor, two uh, members of the Astor family feuding that had two hotels that were on the site of what is today the Empire State Building. And the way they settled the feud was they, one hotel was the Waldorf, the other was the Astoria, and they settled the feud by connecting them with what they called Peacock Alley, and it became famously the Waldorf Astoria in New York. That was in the late 1800s, they ultimately sold it to what um, got redeveloped as the Empire State Building, and where the current Waldorf Astoria is was built during the Great Depression and opened in 1931, okay. and is under massive redevelopment um, and should open reopen as what I think will be the best luxury hotel in New York in 2023, with 400 rooms and, you know, about the same amount of high-end luxury apartments.
1: So there's another rumor going around about another Waldorf Astoria. It's rumored in Washington, D.C. where we are now <laughs> at the Trump Hotel, um, which had its challenges, which has been reported and sold to somebody and that you, uh, Hilton, will manage it as a Waldorf Astoria. Can you comment on that?
2: I've read that same rumor, but no, I can't, can't comment, comment on that. I have a, a very strict rule. I'll, I'll comment when something is okay. done. And so the rumors are justified in the sense that there's there's a lot of work. and discussion okay. going on, but no, nothing is done.
1: Now, there's a uh, new phenomenon that's now not that new called Airbnb. What What is that? And when it came along, the hotel industry kind of shrugged it off a bit, but is it a real competitor to you? And are you gonna be in that business?
2: Um, I do not think it's a real competitor to us. So if you think about what we do, it's something different than what they do. And I think we coexist with them quite well. We deliver a high quality consistent product with the amenities wrapped in service with all the technology loyalty and people pay us generally a big premium for that because they you know they want that level of consistent high quality experience what they do is something different that they, what they're doing is by definition you know doesn't can't have the consistency and the quality and the products and the amenities that are tailor fit because it's just something different but it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's it's satisfying a different kind of trip occasion. So if you look at the numbers, even you know pre-COVID, we were coexisting quite well. We were we were at the the peak levels of performance um, at a time you know where they were growing leaps and bounds, and we weren't really seeing um, significant competitive. Um, threat as yeah. a result of it.
1: As an investor, um, should I be looking at the hotel lodging industry as a good area to invest in? I mean, your stock recently has gone to near all-time highs from very low uh, point in time during the uh, COVID period of time. Um, you think there's a lot of growth left in lodging and hotel stocks?
2: Uh, that I'll, you know, you're one of the smartest investors on earth, so I'm not going to give you. And an, uh, I'm a lowly hotel guy. I'll let I'll okay. let you decide that. I think why the stocks have performed well is um, really quite simple. I think it's an underlying belief that the business broadly will, demand in the business in all segments will come back and will ultimately over time grow to be greater than it was before, which I believe. And I think in our case, why we've performed well is I think they believe Investors believe that the decisions we made, that we had a very good capital light business that was that was growing faster than anybody in the industry before, the decisions that we made during COVID put us in an even better position where when we get to the other side of it, we're a higher market share, higher growth, higher margin business. And um, the market, as you and I both know, as a result of a whole bunch of things in, in, in terms of, fiscal policy and the like, is just looking f- further forward. And I think when people look forward two and three years, they like what they see in the industry, and I'd like to believe they really like what they see in terms of what we can deliver.
1: You've now been doing this for about 14 years, if I count the numbers right, and you're 59 years old. I am. So, have you thought maybe I should go do something else? I can't do anything better than I'm already doing. I've already turned this company around, I've made a lot of money for the investors, the shareholders, and yourself. Are you happy doing this? You're gonna do this for the foreseeable future?
2: I'm gonna do it for the foreseeable future. I love what I do. And the reality is we've accomplished a lot. As you described, we've made Blackstone a lot of money. We made our shareholders a lot of money. More importantly, we've grown the business and we've been a huge engine of opportunity. If you think about all the jobs we've created around the world, all the communities we've made better places, all the ownership groups who we've helped uh, grow their business and and having built a world-class culture, the opportunities we've created for upward mobility for people. And this business, I would still say, is like a coiled spring coming out of COVID particularly. So I feel like we just have more
1: to do. You know, my my job's far from done. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen.